0: Our world needs Christmas. That's what we're talking about this month of December. And you guys, I love Christmas. I don't know if you love Christmas like I do, but I wanna challenge you this year with a very simple idea that's gonna be woven through everything that we look at this entire month, and it's this. Christmas is a window of opportunity. I think that to some degree, we've lost this sense that Christmas is not a time for us Christians to sit on our hands to fall back, to let the mission go untended to, but actually Christmas is a golden opportunity for us as Christians. I want us to recover that because I think that this season that we call Advent, which refers to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the season of expectation, of celebration as we look forward to that day of Jesus' birth, this is a chance for us to shine the light of Jesus in this world. I was at uh, my parents' house last Sunday in between the uh, morning services and the evening service, and uh, we were there with the whole family, um, all my brothers and, um, and my family and my parents all decorating the tree together and listening to Christmas music, you know, As one does, we had the the Christmas music on the TV, you know, playing out there, hanging ornaments, remembering when this one was made or who we got this one from, looking at the years and the little pictures of our family as we're putting them up. And this song came on, this playlist that was playing, and it was Ariana Grande's rendition of Last Christmas you know, the great wham, contribution to the Christmas anthology, Last Christmas. And as she's singing the song and my um, eardrums are being assaulted, I look to the TV and see that there's little quotes coming up from an interview with Ariana Grande about this song that she recorded. And what was incredible was that she was talking in these, these quotes about how she loved this song because it doesn't have anything to do with religion. She said, it is a Christmas song, a way that a Christmas song should be. It's all about life and love and looking inside for strength in hard times. It's all the things that Christmas should really be about. Now, what's going on when we see something like that? When we encounter this kind of idea that Christmas, which has the name Christ in it, right? that it really shouldn't be about Christ at all. It should be about something else. It should be about family and about love and about acceptance and all of those things. Well, here's really what I want us to to think about as we go into this this, um, Our World Needs Christmas series is that you can think about it kind of like this. On the one side, we have secular Christmas. That's not going to (laughs) work. There we go. It's catching up to me. Secular Christmas is over here. And this is the, uh, the Christmas celebration that's really a festival of light. It's all about giving and family and materialism. And then over here, we have Christian Christmas. And this is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that I really think that as much as there's two different celebrations going on at the same time at this time of year, there really is an overlap there's an area in which the world celebration of Christmas And the Christian celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ overlap, and in that, there's an opportunity. You can kind of think about it this way. Over here in secular Christmas, we have, um, that are really exclusive to that celebration are really the ideas of materialism, you know, that's all about going out and getting the next big thing and and giving it to your family and seeing what you're going to get and making your different lists and your different apps of all the different things that you want for Christmas. Um, There's also this this celebration really that kind of goes along with it. Of excess, right? We talk about eat, drink, and be merry during Christmas. And so it's all about, you know, going over the top. And another way of saying this would even be overindulgence. Do you see that? That Christmas, which began as a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, has really become a celebration of how much can I put into my body? How much can I enjoy? How many calories can I consume in one sitting? That's kind of the secular vision of christmas and then over here on the christian side of christmas although you know it's not as if to say that we don't engage in these things as christians because all too often we really do but over here you might have things like um really the fact that the the christian celebration of christmas is all about salvation it's all about the gift of jesus christ who is the one who reconciles us to god by his coming as a human being by his death on the cross his resurrection really also there's the idea of god with us. Emmanuel, the name that's given to Jesus. All of that is not really something that we talk about or engage in in this secular world of Christmas, but it is something that's distinctive to our celebration of Christmas. But really, the most interesting stuff, and the stuff that I really want to challenge you with this season, is what happens in the middle here. What is it that we have in common with the rest of the world? I think there are a few different things. At Christmas, we talk about love. We share that with the people around us. We just have a different reason for it, a different meaning behind it maybe. Things like family, that's a positive thing and that's a huge part of secular Christmas. It's also part of our Christmas celebration. Also things like generosity. And today what we're gonna talk about is light or hope. This idea that at Christmas we let the light in. We hope for something greater for this world we we don't fear and cower from the darkness of this world but we endeavor to shine a light into it. Do you realize that your neighbors, your family members who don't believe in Jesus Christ are still primed for this kind of attitude at Christmas time? We have a tremendous opportunity, and that's what we're going to look at today, to shine a little light, the true light of Jesus Christ into this celebration at Christmas time. We're going to talk about hope today. We're going to talk about light. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9 to establish that, this prophecy about the coming of Jesus. But before we can see the hope and the light that Jesus is going to bring into the world, we have to first look at the darkness of our world. And that's where our passage begins today. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. And prophet Isaiah writes to the Jewish people about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, he says, When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's really interesting to back the train up a little bit here, because this is really what comes immediately before this message of, you know, the people who have been walking in darkness have seen a great light. The question that we naturally have is, what is the darkness? How did we get into this position of darkness? And that's what Isaiah is identifying here. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem at a time of deep rebellion against God. And God gave him this understanding and this vision to say that if this rebellion, if this rejection of God continues in the same way that it has gone, it is leading towards sure destruction. And so Isaiah in chapter 8 here has this vision that depicts all of Jerusalem, all of Judah, all of God's people thrust into thick darkness. And this darkness is explained by Isaiah in two different ways. First, this darkness has to do with sin. Sin is really the source, really the the, the thing, the contributing factor that brings about the thick darkness that God's people find themselves in. Isaiah talks about how the people looked to mediums and necromancers, people who consulted spirits and the dead for wisdom. Which is something, by the way, that God expressly forbids in his law. But it's not only that. It's not only that they were you know, going to this sort of magical or this sorcery in order to, to try to find wisdom for their time, to try to escape the, the coming destruction and the darkness that was coming for them. Isaiah also uses this phrase, I don't know if you noticed it as we read the verse, he says that they looked to the earth for wisdom. That as they found out what path they were on, as they saw that they were moving toward destruction, the people's first reaction was to look to the earth. In other words, to man-made solutions for the darkness that they were headed into. This thinking that says, we can do this. We can change things around. We just have to find a better way to do this. We just have to find a better way to build our walls higher, to build stronger armies. We can prepare. We can be ready for the destruction that's coming. We can do this. We can do this. That's looking to the earth. But really what happens here is that it just thrusts them into thicker, darkness this is part of what makes our world dark even today that we tend to choose our own way and our own wisdom over God and his when we take the darkness of the world into our own hands the lesson of history and I I hope the lesson of your own life when you try to fix your own brokenness when you try to save yourself from your own darkness is that you really typically only end up making things worse There's also a second way that Isaiah explains the darkness here, and it's not just sin, it's suffering. Isaiah points out that this rejection of God, this rebellion against him, this looking to the earth, looking to our own man-made solutions, actually results in hunger, aimlessness, and anguish for the people of God. They're depicted as wandering through the land with no direction, no leader, no source of light, and just going deeper and deeper into darkness. You know, what's really interesting is that the Bible has a very surprisingly nuanced understanding of what's wrong with the world. I think so often people think that the Bible very simplistic, that, you know, it's, it's light and dark, it's good and bad, that the things that happen to you in your life that are negative are God's judgment and God's wrath against you. That's a very um, kind of backwards way of thinking about right and wrong. And yet people think that that's what Christians believe, that when something bad happens to me, it's because I did something to anger God, and so he's pouring out his wrath upon me. But bad things that happen are not all God's judgment against sin. Usually, the Bible is very clear about this, usually righteous people and unrighteous people suffer the same things right next to each other, without seeming to be any discretion between the two of them. Usually Christians and non-Christians suffer the same things, at the same time, to the same degree. And so it's more complicated than we might like to think. But here's the thing, suffering is a result of sin. It's not a direct punishment from God for a specific sin in your life. And so when you suffer, you are not meant, I believe, God is not inviting you to say, God, what did I do wrong to deserve this thing that seems to have come out of nowhere to be a punishment against me? That's not what it means that suffering is a result of sin. really, the fact is that suffering is the natural outworking of our vandalism of the world God created. It's not that God says, you stepped out of line, here's a punishment to get you back in line. It's that we, and it began in the garden, it began with Adam and Eve, we have turned this world away that it wasn't meant to go, and now we deal with the consequences each and every day. Righteous and unrighteous, Christian and non-Christian. We all suffer, and it's all because of sin. The world is sick, and we made it that way. Now, I'm really glad that this isn't the end of the passage for today, And we're not going to leave ourselves in this dark and gloomy portrait of the world that we live in. The good news in this passage is that while our world is tremendously dark, while we are like those people walking in darkness, lost in darkness, anguish and aimless in this world, God is sending a flash of light. God is sending a flash of light to light up that darkness. Look at what he says in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone what's really incredible here is that isaiah's the book of isaiah is really about two different things if you read the whole book you'll see that isaiah spends a lot of time warning god's people saying you need to turn it around you need to change your ways there's destruction there's judgment there's punishment on the horizon but the other part of the book of isaiah is a message of hope To say, look, this is coming for you, and you can turn it around, you can change, it doesn't have to be this way. But know this, even if you're headed for that destruction, even if you're headed for that suffering, on the other side is the hope that God is going to vindicate you, is going to turn it all around. This verse tells us first that God intends to destroy the darkness. There's a really cool image in this one little verse here where it says that on the people living in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. That word shone in in, uh, Hebrew is actually more like flashed. And so the the mental image that Isaiah is trying to conjure up for us is that the, the people have been living in this deep, deep kind of can't see your hand in front of your face darkness. And suddenly, in a moment of time, this glorious light flashes into it, and suddenly it brings light. You can see everything. It's this sudden, without warning, light shining on them. The first piece of good news at Christmas is this, that God was not content to allow his creation to persist in darkness forever. God intends to do away with the darkness of the world that we live in, the darkness that we've created by our own sin and rebellion against him, God intends to do away with it, to make an end to it. You know, it's not very cool or fashionable or intellectual to have hope these days. If you look at the darkness of our world, and if you're really serious about, you know, engaging with what's happening in the world, and you actually try to approach it from this vision of hope, That maybe things won't get worse forever and ever, but maybe things will get better someday. Maybe there's a future for us that isn't dark, that isn't destruction, that isn't, you know, the heat death of the universe or something like that. If you have that kind of attitude, people will see you as naive, as kind of Pollyannish, as maybe a less than serious person. People will not want to trust you. They won't want to go there with you because the world is not primed for this kind of hope. But Christians do have a firm foundation for hope, an audacious, persistent, confident, bulletproof hope that God will make an end to sin and evil and injustice and pain and suffering forever and ever. And here's the key point not to miss. This is a gift from God, not an accomplishment of our own. This destruction of the darkness, this light that flashes into the world, is a gift of God. It's not something that human beings accomplish on our own. And this is such an important point to make because so often we are tempted to think that we are the solution to the world's problems. Even if that's from a, a good and, and a kind of pseudo-wholesome way, we start to think, you know, we have good news, we have the ability to make a difference in this world, but Christians, we must not lose the fact that that light doesn't come from us. It doesn't say that among the people walking in darkness, a light started to emanate. It says on the people walking in darkness, a light has shone. It comes from outside the system. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from you or from me or from any great leader or from any great teacher. It comes from God. He has to shine light into our world if there's ever going to be light in our world. We need a solution outside the system, and this is what Christmas is really about, that God saw our predicament, and he intended to do something about it. Now we can look at what exactly he did to help us. Let's look at the source of the light, one of the most famous Christmas verses, especially in the Old Testament, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The great hope for Isaiah's people is that on the other side of God's judgment, which is going to come to them in the form of this army, this foreign army coming in, scattering their people all around the land, taking some of them away in exile, on the other side of this great disaster, that is marked in time, that they are headed towards certainly, there is hope, and the hope is summed up in this idea that a king will rise up. This king will be born as a child, and this promised child who will become king has these four different titles that are given to him, and this is what's really interesting here. Listen to these titles and ask yourself, who in the world could this ever be true of? First, it says that this child is going to be a wonderful counselor, which wraps up in it this idea of wisdom and guidance, but also of sort of love and attention. This idea of being a counselor is not so much, you know, especially our modern sense of counselor, which is like, you know, tell me how that makes you feel kind of counselor, but actually this idea of like guidance, of walking with you through your life. That's the title, the very first title that's given to this promised child is that he, whoever he is, is going to be one who guides his people along in wisdom. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a shepherd. He is a guide along life's way. The second title is that he's a mighty God, which is incredible that the Old Testament, this book that is so careful at every turn to tell you that human beings are not like God. That's one of the major themes of the Old Testament is that God says, I am not like a man. I am not like you. I am different from you. I am far removed from you. I am holier than you. You cannot barge into my presence in your sinfulness. Incredibly, in this passage, in the middle of Isaiah, it says that this child, this human being to be born will be called Mighty God. Incredible. Emphasizing his strength, his power, his ability to do whatever it is he desires to do. Third, it says that he's an everlasting father. As if to say that he's the creator. He's the origin of the world. He is the father of the universe of everything. He is the designer of your destiny and mine. And then finally, that he's the prince of peace. And here we have hope. Hope that this child to be born will be a solution to all our problems and ills. That his reign is not going to be oppressive like every other ruler and every other king that God's people and anyone had ever known. But that he will truly be a prince of peace. Now we know that this child that Isaiah is talking about is Jesus. That he is the source of the light that shines in the darkness in verse 2. This passage tells us something very simple, and this is really the big idea of what Isaiah is laying out for us, that Jesus, even though he didn't know that name, Jesus descended into our darkness to shine his light on us. You know, this is really the shocking and the scandalous story of Christmas, that God brings his light into our dark world, but he doesn't do it in the way that we might expect. You see the image in Isaiah begins by kind of like like we talked about that the light comes from outside the world and that's true. But really what God ends up doing is that he as the light enters into our world. That Jesus Christ, that child born in the manger, shines light into the world because the light is in him. Because he is human, he's one of us, he comes into our darkness. But he is God. He is the light incarnate into the darkness. And therefore, he can shine it into our lives. Perfect, pure, holy God breaks into the world of brokenness and corruption and rebellion. That is the scandal of Christmas time. And we so easily lose that. We're so primed to just move back to kind of these carols and these celebrations and these nativity scenes, and we miss the fact that that baby lying in the manger is the living God, that he who is separate from all of our despair, all of our destruction, all of our darkness, he who lives, as the Bible tells us, in unapproachable light, has made himself approachable to us, that he is the one who comes to us that we could never get to him. We lose that. We miss that. What a tremendous message that it is, though. And what an encouragement it could be to those people who think that Christmas is just about this story of this cute little baby and this quaint little event that happened with the shepherds and the wise men. It's so much more than that. Can we reclaim it? Can we put it to work the way that God calls us to this Christmas? I want to point out another thing here, which is that these four titles... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They really actually show two sides of Jesus in tension with each other. See, on the one hand, it says that Jesus is Mighty God and Everlasting Father, and those two titles, really, when you hear them, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, you are, you are primed here to, to have a vision of God who is large, who is big, who is powerful, who is omnipotent, who is ruler over the world, who is ultimate creator and judge of all existence. And yet, on the other hand, you have these titles that Jesus is Wonderful Counselor. And remember, that's like a a step-by-step guide coming alongside you. And that he's the Prince of Peace. And these emphasize his kindness and his gentleness. And where over here, we see him as a king. Over here, we're primed to see him as a servant walking with us, supporting us, guiding us through our lives. So in other words, what we have in Jesus and what Christmas tells us he is is an omnipotent and eternal God who knows what it's like to be you. To suffer, to struggle, to hurt, to feel rejected, to fear, to mourn and grieve, to be tempted, to worry, to doubt, to wonder if you're strong or brave enough, In no place do we see that more clearly than as Jesus is in the garden headed toward his death and asks God from the core of his being, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from before me. Christmas says that when you pray to God, you pray to someone who all at once is more than able to do anything you could ever ask or imagine, and yet at the same time intimately knows your own weakness, intimately knows what it's like to be in your shoes only christmas only jesus gives us that offer there is no other religion there is no other belief system in this world that tells you that your god is one who dwells in unapproachable light and yet came to be with you as one of you finally let's look at what this passage tells us the coming of the light actually accomplishes in our world or we might call it the meaning of the light This passage gives us two implications of the coming of the light of Jesus. First, it means the beginning of the end for sin and suffering. I think we may be tempted to think we know this passage. I I certainly was. It seems like this nice sentimental picture of Christmas and Jesus in the manger, you know, the people walking in darkness see this great light and this little baby. It's all about hope and joy and peace. But there's something really interesting that happens when people, and and I've been guilty of this. I think last year I preached on this message, and I did the old uh, Isaiah 9, 2, 5 through 7. Because in verses 3 through 5, there's some really interesting stuff that doesn't seem to match up with our understanding of what Christmas is really about. Verse two is the dawning of the light. Verse six is the child who's born to us. Verses three to five depict that this child will make an end to oppression, war, strife, and violence. Look at these verses and just imagine these being our Christmas theme verse for this year. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to molt and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire merry christmas i mean it's incredible (laughs) it's so crazy that that's right in the middle of this you know, sentimental little picture that we tend to have, and it changes the tone of this passage entirely. You see, this verse points us toward this, this fact of the Christmas promise of the Bible is not just that in Jesus we have a wonderful counselor as if that wouldn't be enough. It's not just that in Jesus we have this wonderful story about the humility of God entering into our darkness and our brokenness. But the story of the Bible from the very beginning when it comes to Christmas has been about the death and destruction of death and destruction, of oppression, of strife, of warfare, of violence. That's what it means when it says every garment rolled in blood, every blood-stained garment that some soldier had worn into battle will be thrown into the fire of God's glory in order to fuel it. In other words, God, through Jesus Christ, through this child, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, is going to turn this whole world around. And everything that's wrong with it, everything that we experience that isn't the way that it's supposed to be, is going to be thrown into that fire, which is going to fuel the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ for all eternity. That's Christmas! Why don't we have any songs about that? (laughs) Christmas is not a sentimental thing. It's not about warm hearts and good food. It's about God delivering the death blow to everything that's wrong with our world. Violence, oppression, pain, death, sin, rebellion. Christmas was a frontal assault on all these things, and he will bring a final end to them one day. That's why at Christmas, our hearts feel that sense of hope and excitement. The thrill of hope, as one of our Christmas songs says. Why? Because it's at Christmas that we remember that all those things that ruin life in this world all those ways in which our world is not the way that it's supposed to be, they all have an expiration date assigned to them. Only God the Father knows when that is. But it's the moment that Jesus comes back. He will bring a final end to all these things, and here's the other implication of Jesus coming on that note, the promise of eternal peace. Back to the more familiar part of this passage, verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. I want to just pause here to tell you the gospel because that's what this passage, that's especially what this verse points us to, that that baby in the manger grew up to be a man And that man, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, the life you and I should have lived, but never could live. He died a gruesome and violent death on a cross, the death that sinful, rebellious humanity, including you and I, deserved to die. Then he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and when he returns, he will finish the work that he started. And the future of the universe, beyond that, beyond the return of Jesus Christ in his glory, is depicted all throughout the Old Testament as lions lying down with lambs, natural predators living peacefully with their prey. Christmas is a guarantee of what God intends to do in our world. It is the warning shot of the new world that God is creating through Jesus Christ. Now let's turn the page here. If Christmas is a window of opportunity, I want us to ask very seriously, how can we use it to share the good news about Jesus? And so let's look at some application here which has to do with living in the light at Christmas time. Last, uh, last week, we, uh, Rachel and I got out our artificial Christmas tree and we fluffed up all the branches and we put it together and um, then we went and plugged it in, which is the wrong order to do those things, right? Because when we went to plug it in, this is what happened. Isn't it beautiful? (laughs) And let me tell you, I don't know if there are any engineers in the house. Danny's over there. So Danny, maybe you could help me with this. Why is it that in 2021, the best way we know how to fix this problem is to go to every individual light and shove it back into its place? That's ridiculous, you guys. That has really nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but that is ridiculous. And so after that whole experience of shoving those things back into place, here's what the tree looked like. Yeah, it's the same picture. It didn't do anything. (laughs) And I can't even claim credit for the fact that it, it now looks much better. It would have been good if I had sent Brenda an uh, after picture to have up there, but I didn't. Um, I can't even take credit for it because Rachel went through and unzip tied and chopped up all the lights that were on there and put new ones on it. So now it looks really nice and it's decorated. But it kind of struck me as I was thinking about this idea of light coming into darkness that this picture might be the perfect illustration of a modern Christmas. I mean, looking at this, we see there's some light, but there's also some darkness. And all together, when you mix in the light that is shining and then the big patches of darkness, it puts together a pretty unimpressive portrait of what it's supposed to represent, which is Christmas, right? And so here's the invitation that I want to give you guys today. Not just today, but throughout the entire month of December, we're going to encourage you to seize every opportunity you can to shine the light of Jesus Christ at this time of year. Today, I'm gonna to start with three points of application and, uh, and the endeavor of all of this is to say, what if we, living in the light, could shine a little bit of that light into the darkness of this world? So application number one is this, practice discernment. Where are the windows of redemption and opposition? Remember, I said that Christmas is a window of opportunity. And I actually think there's a couple different kinds of windows of opportunity that we have at Christmas time. Rick McKinley, the preacher, talks about windows of redemption and windows of opposition in our culture. Windows of redemption are those places where we can say, I agree. Where we can celebrate the same things and, and work for the same causes that the rest of the world does. I saw a very cool example of this a few weeks ago at the food bank where... Our volunteer pool for one Saturday at the food bank was made up of people from our church mostly, but then there were some others, two unaffiliated with Southside Bible study groups, the Boy Scouts, uh Ferris High School Service Club, the Spokane Libertarian Party, which I thought was really interesting, and two people doing court-ordered community service, all serving the same cause together. <laughs> it's inc- it's amazing. That is a portrait of a window of redemption. Why? Because all these people of all these different backgrounds who are there for all these different reasons come together to say, This is a good thing that we're doing. We as Christians get to enter into that and say, It is a good thing. And guess what? We might have an even better reason for doing it than you do. That's an opportunity. And we have those all around us at Christmas time. We'll talk about that again in a moment here. The other one are windows of opposition. There are windows of redemption where we say, I agree. Windows of opposition are where we have to say, I disagree. This is where our values diverge from the world's and we must stand firm. And it's here in windows of opposition that we lovingly and humbly invite people to see things from our perspective. Now, here's the challenge. Too many people, when it comes to these two different options, want to fall off the tightrope one direction or the other. Too often our temptation is to either say, I'm only going to affirm everything. I'm only going to celebrate everything that I see. I'm only going to focus on that. Or, I'm only going to criticize. I'm only going to see where the world is falling short. I'm only going to fight against it. The challenge, and this is why the application here is to practice discernment, to discern which case you're, in, you're dealing with in the moment. Is this a window of redemption? Is it a window of opposition? Don't fall off the tightrope. Practice discernment and engage each thing as it comes. Number two, join the celebration. I want to challenge you to acknowledge and to name the light wherever you find it. This is what we do when we find those windows of redemption. And this practice of saying, what are the things that the world is celebrating that we as Christians can say, we actually want to celebrate that too? What are the causes that the world is engaged in that where we can say we want to work for that too, but we have a different reason for it, we have a different animating force behind it, it's Jesus Christ. This practice actually goes back to the very roots of Christmas as a holiday. This is the time of year where it's going to be very popular for some people to tell you that we really shouldn't have Christmas trees. And I guess I've outed myself on which side of the debate I'm on on that one. But uh, we shouldn't have Christmas trees, we shouldn't do stockings, we shouldn't talk about Santa, we shouldn't sing, you know, deck the halls or any of those things, because Christmas is a pagan holiday right and it was imported into christianity and it's this negative force well here's what i want to tell you it's actually the story of christmas is that christmas was born christianity was born into a world that already had this winter solstice pagan celebration and that celebration was all about light and darkness bringing light into your home at a time when it was the deepest darkness outside, which is exactly what we're experiencing right now. It was about warmth in a time of bitter cold, and so gathering around the fire, around the Yule log. It was about family and community in a time of great danger, when the elements and when other forces conspired to try to hurt people and to even threaten their lives. And that's what Christmas was about. And the Christians who came into that culture said, these are all really good things. And we agree with them but we think we have a better reason to celebrate those things and it's the coming of jesus christ at christmas i believe we need to recover the ability to do this today to call what is good good even if someone who is evil says it's good that's tremendously difficult because it works against our pride we want to line up on two sides of an issue and throw things at each other Jesus says, no, you call what is good, good, even if someone who is evil says it's good. Number three, open the window. Christmas is a window of opportunity. I want to challenge you to open the window. Show people into the light that they can't see in this world. As much as we should celebrate what we can about Christmas, there's a lot about our culture's Christmas that we cannot celebrate. Christmas in our community is all too often about materialism, and excess, and greed, and overindulgence, and self-numbing. What if we did something about that this year? Let me give you a simple, easy challenge here today. Christmas Eve services. We'll have three this year. The truth is, we probably won't need all of them. We could probably fit everyone into two, maybe even one, but we do this in order to spread them out, to make it easier for people to get to them. And the truth is that as much as we may, especially people like me who grew up in the church, we may think that you know Christmas is a, is a time of year when people come to church who don't come to church the rest of the year. I want to tell you that's not really true anymore. There may be a handful of people, but the people who are going to be here on Christmas Eve are the people who are here in this room right now. Christmas is an opportunity. And I want to put this before you today. If you assume that your neighbors know where they're going for Christmas Eve or that they have anywhere they're going to go, don't assume that. If you assume that your family is going to be excited about going to Christmas Eve with you this year, don't assume that. It's time to use this time of year, this day, which we share with the rest of our culture, it's time to use it as the opportunity that I think God is throwing it up like a nice soft pitch for us to hit out of the park. Will you invite someone to Christmas Eve with you this year? We're gonna do all the hard work of telling them about Jesus. We're gonna do all the hard work of explaining what Christmas is about. Can you do what may, for some of you, be even harder work of inviting them into this place to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? I wanna put that challenge before you and maybe even today, you can write down the name of someone that God is putting on your heart to invite to Christmas Eve. Write it on your notes so that you'll remember later on that the Holy Spirit, not me, Not this church, not my notes, but the Holy Spirit is calling you to make a difference with this holiday this year. Will you pray with me?